0: Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History.
1: I hope you can feel
2: their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton.
3: 1895, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball
4: formed the British Ladies Football Club. I interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just
5: told his story in his own words. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's annual symposium. This is session two of our virtual gathering. Our first session in May focused mostly on the 19th century, and today we'll venture into the 20th century. Uh, Before we do that, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge these tumultuous times we're now experiencing at the beginning of the 21st century. The Society continues to be a place to gather in community to explore our shared soccer stories. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can best find us in two places, on the web at ussoccerhistory.org, and on social media, on Facebook and Twitter accounts. Uh, You can join uh, our society through our website, and uh, a continued thank you to all our members for your interest and your support. I'd Like to introduce our first uh, speaker, Kurt Rausch, is a public soccer historian based out of New Jersey. His interests include metropolitan soccer history, focusing on the National Association Football League. His playing days have long since passed, but he can still put one in the upper corner every now and then. And if you've ever seen him, he has unparalleled skill with FultonHistory.com. So our first speaker, Kurt Rausch.
4: Thank you very much for the uh, introduction here. Uh, I've been a SASH member now for a few years, but this is my uh, first time on this side of the camera, uh, so to say, um, currently writing a paper that'll be up on the SASH site, uh, hopefully very soon. And I'd um, like to discuss that project with you today Uh, The project is about a gentleman by the name of Samuel Bustard whose uh, soccer career spanned from 1912 to 1926 uh, in East Coast. Uh, Bustard first came to my attention during some uh, research I was conducting on uh, my family members, uh, the Fisher brothers, who uh, Charlie and Tommy Fisher, who played in a, a lot of the similar teams, and their, their paths had crossed with uh, Bustard many times in, in the past. Uh, what I wanted to accomplish with this project was to first introduce uh, Samuel Bustard and, um, to the soccer history community and provide some detail into his, his uh, accomplishments, his fantastic career, which... Uh, dealt with paying with many of the story teams of, of that period, and what I also wanted to do was uh, in parallel uh, discuss a lot of the important events that transcribed during that that period and It was a very tumultuous period, a lot a lot of change and I wanted to sort of wrap, wrap that back and 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 see how that reflected against Bustard and his career and, and how he navigated through those waters. And as we'll see shortly too, uh, Bustard, uh came face to face with uh, the terror of the uh, 1918 Spanish flu plant pandemic, and, and we'll discuss that a bit later. Okay, some info here on his uh, early years. He emigrated to the United States from Belfast uh, June 1st, 1912. He was just, just past his 20th birthday. He had some family members that have already emigrated to, to the Passaic, New Jersey area, which is uh, right next to Patterson, and the first team he played for, first time I see him in, in the newspaper uh, records, is playing for the Patterson Olympics, and uh, played against the Patterson True Blues in, in an AFA Cup match in 1912, and that was uh, where he first impressed a lot of people, and uh, shortly thereafter, was uh, signed a professional contract by the Patterson Rangers in the 1912-1913 season. I can possibly go on? Okay. Now his rise to prominence here as as uh, one of the East's top players. Uh, on the left here, we see a list of teams that he played for in uh, chronological order there. And on the right, we can see some of the uh, you know the major topics and major events that that were going on at the time that uh that affected soccer and and his career and as you can see a l- little interesting here too on the left is every single one of those teams uh that is mentioned here uh went out of business because of one of the uh the reasons uh, on the right uh, for the for the all-star aggregation that that was a concept that started in around 1910 in, in the Patterson area with uh, Patterson Wilberforce. They took a lot of the players that had um, come from the Clark AA team that disbanded and they were known locally as the all-stars. And, and what these teams were was I, I like to almost liken them to like Kentucky or one of those major college basketball um, uh, schools where you know, they have these players for a short time before they go to the pros. You know, these, these all-star aggregations were just these one-shot teams. Patterson, True Blues, 1912, 1913, uh, the Brooklyn Field Club that won the first National Challenge Cup, same thing. Of course, I have the landscaping crew now that's next door to me. Uh, but. Then uh, the Patterson Silk, Silk Strike was a major event that, that, that hit Patterson, and essentially the, the mill owners won decisively, and the way they, they won was pretty much waiting out uh, the strikers, and most of the uh, finances of, of any of the strikers was, was totally um, used up by the time the Silk Strike had ended, and this was not a good time for the Patterson Rangers to have a, one of these All-Star Elevens. They had a large, uh, large payroll, and just there wasn't the support in the in the Patterson community here. And uh, pretty much as a result, all of the major Patterson teams, the Patterson True Blues, the Rangers, and and um, Wilberforce teams, uh, were defunct by by 1915. Uh, you can see then Bustard moved over to the West Hudson uh, Club. Which was one of the major teams for like the last ten years at this point, and then from there on to Brooklyn Celtic, where he really much gained gained his his highest level of fame, uh, playing for the the green and white. At this time here, uh, World War One uh, hit, and uh, as Europe was involved in in the conflict, you know, way way before the United States was, it's interesting to note that. Uh, the impact on soccer in the United States was it it was affected as early as 1915 you know two years before uh, the United States entered into the war and in my paper I have uh, a reference to the uh, Newark football club that lost uh, six players uh, to either Canadian expeditionary forces or various units over in Scotland and um, many teams uh, went by the wayside uh, including Brooklyn Celtic from, from the war. And uh, now one of my topics here that I, a soapbox of mine for now, uh, <clears throat> a little bit, these, uh, the rise of the shipyard clubs, the, the more stride docks, Robbins dry docks, federal ship, Carney, and teams such as those. They, they really stepped in at this time and, and really changed the soccer landscape, uh, Broussard uh, P- uh, played for the Patterson FC the 1917-1918 season, uh, which was very successful. They actually upset uh, Bethlehem Steel uh, to win the National Association League, uh, football league title. But within in two years after that, uh, due to part of the shipyard meddling and some other uh, factors, Patterson FC was gone. So they they were a, a very did not have a good impact on on the the local soccer landscape at the time. These the shipyard clubs, there were a lot of meddling with players, uh, uh, tampering with players under contract. But what they did do was they created these these super teams, these these teams that were that were really fantastic. Robbins Dry Dock was was beating just about everybody during that period, and they had some real uh, monumental games with. With uh, the Erie Athletic Association. Uh, during that time, too, uh, Bostard was selected to a lot of uh, picked elevens. Uh, he was living in Brooklyn at the time, and he, he represented Brooklyn in the Euro- interborough games, and also was a mainstay on the Irish team in the New York Footballers Protective Association uh, games. Actually, uh, winning the 1917 title there, defeating an American team. And well, during his time with Patterson, he was uh, drafted into the Army uh, in, in Fort Dix, or Camp Dix at the time. And this too was, was right around the time that the uh, Spanish flu was, was making its inroads in, into the country here. And it really, you know, for this topic, we need to focus on the, the second wave of, of the, the flu, which, which hit in late September and really uh, pretty much spread through the military encampments and, and exploded first at Camp Devons and then moving down to, to Camp Dix, where, Spanish, uh, where Bustard was, was a soldier. And this pretty much is the, the event here that really had me sold on the uh, story of Samuel Bustard. On October 14th, he was announced as uh, dying from the uh, Spanish flu at Camp Dix, but uh boostard's aunt in Passaic was was perplexed that you know they they didn't hear anything about it so a few phone calls down to camp Dix you know put them in in touch with the the hospital down there and they said no he's 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 not dead he 's still alive he 's actually re- recovering so the next day, his death was retracted in in all the local newspapers and Nice quote from one of the uh, newspaper articles. There is that Samuel Bustard was one of the few men who have been able to read his own obituary notice, and I I thought this was a pretty, pretty fantastic story here. And I and I wasn't alone. Uh, A couple of the newspapers had some of those nostalgia pieces, and Pacific Daily News actually twenty years later had a you know twenty years ago today uh, uh, went over this story again from Bustard. And after after the war, he he was lucky enough to, to recover. And by the time he recovered, it was really only a couple of weeks until the armistice was signed. And being that he was in this uh, depot brigade in in the army, which I, I guess lost a lot of its usefulness after after the cessation of uh, of hostilities, he was released uh, from the army on December second here, and of course. The sh- one of the shipyard clubs was was waiting for him, and he, he signed with more Strydock and played for for two years and the uh, the shipyard clubs you know continued their their mayhem uh, throughout the throughout the period, and which I, I get into in uh, pretty good detail in, in my paper and actually more Stridock went away because uh, they had some issue with uh, the players and the the league of, and the team officials that they decided to call a quiz. So, so these were, there was a house of cards here that was very, very fragile. These teams, because the, the, the increased player mobility at the time it made it so where, you know, these guys really didn't have much of a need to to stay local as much and, and they really, you know, followed the money and Morse Rydock, you know, at one point had a uh, six or seven players from, the Fall River Rovers when they were experiencing some troubles. But uh, what, what this, as I mentioned, is what this did create was was really the haves and the have-nots here in the National Association Football League. You know, we had Erie, uh, Moore Stride Dock, uh, Robin Stride Bethlehem Steel, and then you had teams like uh, Bunker Hill FC that replaced the Patterson uh, Football Club on A collapsed so you had a real discrepancy there there in, in the quality of teams and and you had pretty much more the, the these teams were more interested playing again for playing themselves in in, in competitions and they were actually in uh, National Association Football League league games so really the only the only place for these teams was, was another more more elite league here so that uh, led to the uh, creation of the American Soccer League, and Bustar did have a a, a, a small impact, a uh, brief appearance in the league, playing for roughly ten games for Harrison FC, where I think either he decided or maybe someone told him, you know, he was getting around thirty years old at the, at this time, so he, he he decided to take a step down, and and what. One of the unfortunate things that the ASL uh, did create, though, was you know, it was indisputed, the, the, the top league. And some of the leagues that were underneath it, like the uh, Brooklyn Soccer League, uh, New York State League, they sort of became almost inconsequential, uh, what one could say. They didn't get a lot of press. and um, But he stepped down and he played for... For Bay Ridge at first, which which actually was a, a fine team. They had Nat Agar on the team and a lot of the, the players from the, the Jersey City Celtic team that participated in the first year of the ASL and, and, and collapsed uh, pretty quickly. But they were very good. And he also ended up playing for some other uh, Brooklyn teams. Also at this time too, we had the Uh, the entrance of the St. Louis teams now into the National Challenge Cup competition around this period. And you had Skull & Steel, Ben Millers, teams like that, that really uh, contributed to this East versus West uh, competition here. And at one point, uh, Harry Radican put together an All-East team uh, to to play against a team that was essentially the Skull & Steel National Challenge Cup winners. And uh, Bustard was selected uh, to that club, and you know, played alongside Bart McGee. Uh, Tom Flory was a, a substitute, uh, for that, and Neil Clark was on the team. A bunch of, you know, fantastic players. So, for him to be selected to that team, you know, really shows the, the caliber of player he was. And then he would um, pretty much go down and play for, a, a lot of the teams representing the the Brooklyn Irish community at the time, the Emerald Celtic, Brooklyn Hibernians, St. Mary's. And the last uh, time I really saw him come up in the newspapers was 1926, played a game for the St. Mary's, and uh, he was injured in that game, and, and, and that was pretty much his career. Here we have some images of Bustard, and you can see He's number five here on the upper left, or uh, in the middle here uh, with the West Side Rangers. And he's third from the right, on the bottom left, uh picture with Dry Dock. And one of the newspaper articles said that he was quite possibly the smallest player playing in the country, uh, so playing association football in, in the country today. He was only five foot two. so. You know the fact that he, with, with that size limitation, you know, playing against some of these guys and how physical the game was back there—that that, that you know, speaks volumes at, at the the grit and determination this guy had and his and his skill. And here we have some images here of him uh, performing with the Irish team and the New York Footballers uh, Protective Association here. And the top left, you you could see him. He's 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 on the on the far left. He's just a. Very small guy, but he was known for, for having a lot of speed and a lot of quickness and just was, was a great player. Uh, so I hope when, when the paper comes up, I hope uh, I invite you all to, to, uh, to give it a read and hope you enjoyed this today. And I wanted to also give a, a shout out to, to uh, Tom McCabe and Ed Farnsworth here for assisting me during this project. Uh, their their uh, assistance has been invaluable. So uh, back to you, Tom.
5: Uh, Thank you very much, Kurt. And uh, uh, I have read this paper, it's wonderful. And hopefully Kurt uh, does the three Ps, right? He presented today, he'll post it on the SASH website later, and then hopefully uh, we'll publish it in The SASH, uh, which is gonna be an e-publication of the Society. So thank you uh, very much. Patrick Sullivan is a public historian and preservation planner by trade who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Over the past few years, he has been researching and writing about the people, places, and events associated with the history of early soccer in Atlanta and the South. One day, he even hopes to produce a book about it. He better. Patrick, over to you.
6: All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And thanks to everybody. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to present today. Um, I, uh, I guess just to kind of start off, I guess like most of you, or I would suspect that most of you like me, uh, as we're kind of pouring through, um, historic photographs, doing it through over the course of our research, I think it's human nature to look at some of these trophies, the, the shiny uh, metal things and kind of wonder what, what was the fate of these trophies if we don't know, all, know so already. And, uh, I'd initially planned to develop this presentation around the um, work that we've been doing here locally to restore the 1968 uh, NASL trophy won by the Chiefs. Um, and we'll talk about that shortly. But um, after being inspired by Tom's presentation in Frisco a couple of years ago with regard to the American Cup, and then um, more recent develops, developments in my own uh, investigations, I, I, I kind of thought whether we could use some various historic league and tournament trophies as vehicles to briefly explore uh, soccer's early history in the South, which, as Tom mentioned, has been the focus of my research over the past few years. Uh, we'll start in New Orleans, Louisiana, where admittedly I haven't done as much work, uh, mostly due to distance and just not being as familiar with the pro- uh, with the locale, but um, I have jumped into it recently. Um, organized soccer got off to a surprisingly late start in the Crescent City, um, about the late 19- 1890s. And as I say, this is surprising considering the Port City's large immigrant population and uh, the fact that it was the largest metropolitan uh, center in the South by far during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The two individuals that are credited really with starting um, organized league soccer in New Orleans would be Leeds native Albert Whitehouse, uh, the man on the right, who's credited really with the start of organized soccer in New Orleans after being appointed the athletic director of the Young Men, excuse me, Young Men's Gymnastic Club in 1895. Among his players was pro baseball player and later Pelicans and Crackers manager, Ab Powell, who was credited really with popularizing maybe the rain ticket and Ladies Day at the ballpark. Um, The man on the left is John F. Lee, who was the captain of East Ends. Uh, Lee was a Scottish immigrant mill worker, an admitted huge Glasgow Celtic fan and he hailed from Glasgow's uh, East End, um, hence the name I'd imagine. Uh, a formal league was eventually established in 1896-1897, and donations from the six league teams were used to purchase the decorative loving cup that's illustrated here in the center. Lee's East Ends and the ethnic German uh, Edgewaters Club, which was captained by August Carrer on the right, emerged as the two dominant teams and the biggest rivals in the young league. They played for the championship cup on April 19th, 1897, in an acrimonious game that resulted with East Ends defending, defeating the nine men Edgewaters two to nothing. So the league did not really sustain itself past the 1898 season. Some of it was due to some infighting um, I I found in some of the newspaper articles. Uh, Also, I suspect it's the fact that uh, Professor Whitehouse left New Orleans around that time. Um, So what happened to the trophy that we just saw? The last we do hear of it is is in 1906 when John Lee stated in the newspapers that he had retained possession of the cup and would put it up for the winners of the newly formed New Orleans Soccer League of 1907. This was a semi-professional league that they tried to establish in association with the baseball owners in New Orleans. Uh, A.W. Stewart of the old um, uh, American um, Baltimore Orioles was part of that. Um, Lee, uh, however, made no mention of the cup in a later newspaper interview that was published a few uh, years before his death in 1958. The image on the left is is the photo from that article. Uh, I'm currently, I've been in contact and I'm currently collaborating with John Lee's granddaughter. Uh, and we've been trying to work, she was familiar with his history, or there's a family history of him and his connection with soccer in New Orleans, but she has no idea where the cup may be and the fact of, uh, with Katrina and other uh, issues in New Orleans, I, I don't really have high confidence that we'll uncover the status of the trophy. I'm not very hopeful in that regard, but we'll see. Okay, Tom. Okay, next we uh, will move eastward. Um, into the industrial coal rich Birmingham district where reports emerged in the early 1880s of association football being played on the holidays and occasional, occasional weekend among Scottish, English, Irish and Welsh immigrants working in the mining camps dotting the hills outside the city. Hopefully this, is, uh, this map that I've produced, it shows the locations of some of these mining camps um, to the uh, west of downtown Birmingham. So, a loosely structured amateur league was eventually formed in 1897 under the sponsorship of the Pratt Mines, excuse me, Pratt Mines Athletic Club, which donated a $160 ornate championship trophy, which was nicknamed the Temple Cup after the pos- popular baseball trophy of the day. The Cardiff Primrose Football Club, a team composed of Scottish and Welsh coal miners, many of whom were related by blood or marriage, captured the league championship cup in, on August 6, 1898. The league lasted until about 1902, an apparent victim to violent labor strikes. Birmingham's hosting of uh, soccer games, though, um, about 100 years, well, close to 100 years later, the hosting of soccer games at Legion Field during the 1996 Olympics sparked renewed interest in the trophy among Cardiff residents. And it was eventually tracked down by amateur historian Martha Mulkin. She's the uh, woman in the center on the left. Um, She was the great granddaughter of John Norman, the Cardiff manager who was in the picture we just previously saw. She was able to arrange a reunion of the cup complete with the uh, the dynamite box base, which was shown uh, the cup was resting on in the previous historic photo. And it was held in the Cardiff Cemetery with descendants of the players in 1999. Uh, The individual who owned the uh, cup, he's the individual in the photo on the right, uh, Mr. Stewart. And he was the grandson of one of the players. So what's of the cup today? Well, after being passed around by players and barely surviving a fire, that destroyed much of Cardiff in 1920. I'm happy to say it's doing well and resides about 70 miles up the highway from me in Athens, Georgia. Uh, according to its owner, the wife of Mr. Stewart, who we saw previously, uh, the 26 inch tall silver plate trophy was manufactured by the Meriden Silver Plate Company of Meriden, Connecticut. Uh, as you can see in this photo and in the previous photos, it has a uh, pegasi handles and an engraved soccer scene on the face of the trophy. Um, I'm unaware of any other trophy with such ornate handles so it's kind of an interesting design there. We'll stay in Birmingham. Um, Organized soccer returned to the Birmingham district after discontinuing uh, in 1902. It resumed in 1912 with the creation of the two-tiered adult league and an elementary school league for white uh, boys. Birmingham industries and residents would support league soccer on an amateur and semi-professional basis until the mid-30s in Birmingham. The Ramsey Cup, introduced as a mid-season tournament competition in 1913-1914 season, the Ramsey Cup eclipsed the league championship trophy as the most prestigious prize in the Birmingham leagues during the teens and 1920s. Although sponsored by local industrialist Erskine Ramsey, the man on the left, the trophy appears to have been the idea of Tennessee coal and iron executive Carl Landgrab, who came to Birmingham from Bethlehem Steel in 1909. So we see a connection there with The Birmingham leagues and the larger goings-on in soccer at the national level. So Pratt City on left in 1914 and Inslee were among those teams that won the Ramsey Cup. However, Wylam emerged as the league's powerhouse club that dominated the tournament and later claimed ownership of the trophy after winning it more than three times over the course uh, of its existence. So in the late 1970s, Birmingham newspaper sports reporter Mike Labetti, who later wrote for the Boston Herald, Uh, Profiled the history of Birmingham soccer and the Ramsey Cup, which at the time was in possession of uh, former Wylam star player Morris Scotty Levy, uh, who's a native of Kilwinnig, Scotland. Uh, Mr. Levy owned a um, jewelry shop in Wylam and and used, he displayed it in the uh, store windows. The Cup's current whereabouts, however, are unknown. Uh, I have contacted Mr. Levy's uh, daughter, and uh, the descendants of other Wyland players from that period, as well as some uh, descendants of league officials, but I've had no luck to date, although I do have high confidence that the cup will turn up soon. I I feel that I'm I'm on the the trail in that regard. Okay, we'll leave Birmingham and travel east again to Atlanta and the nearby towns of Stone Mountain and Lithonia in DeKalb County, where soccer was first introduced into the area in the 1880s and 1890s by granite stonecutters from Aberdeen, Scotland, and Penmanmar, Wales. The first game of record in Atlanta took place in early 1908 between teams of Irish, Scottish, and Welsh immigrants representing Atlanta and Lithonia. Although the city's small immigrant population and labor issues in the DeKalb DeKalb County granite industry hampered efforts to create a local league, Metro Atlanta organizers were successful in scheduling some of the South's first inner-city soccer matches against sides from Chattanooga, Birmingham, and the Auburn University Soccer Club. The metro area Georgia State Soccer League was finally established in the fall of 1913 with four teams representing Atlanta, Lithonia, Stone Mountain, and the Foot and Davies Publishing Company. The local A.G. Spalding and Brothers branch office donated the heavy silver loving cup, as it was described, that was won by the undefeated Lithonia Stonecutters in the league's only season of play. Um, I have contacted several of the uh, family members of the players in this photo, uh, as well as some of the the men who worked as administrators and officials, but I've had no luck uh, tracking down the location of the cup and whether it still exists. And so its current uh, status remains unknown. Okay, so we'll jump to the Atlanta Chiefs. Uh, We conclude with the Atlanta Chiefs uh, North American Soccer League Championship Trophy. One uh, after their defeat of the San Diego Toros by a 3-0 score and a two-game aggregate, played on September 21st and September 28th, 1968. Restoration of the trophy, which is currently owned by Dick Cecil, the Chief's one-time vice president, coincided with our our efforts, our local efforts, to publicize the recent donation of his NASL and other soccer-related papers to Emory University's Stuart Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. The cup was manufactured at the Newark, New Jersey facilities, there's a shout out to you, Tom, uh, of the Dodge Trophy Company, which was a Chicago-based business that originally produced the Academy Awards Oscar statuettes. Although unconfirmed visual analysis um, that was done as I was trying to figure out the history of this, a visual analysis of the contemporaneous ISL American Challenge Cup and the 1967 MPSL Championship trophy, indicates that those artifacts also may have been produced by the Dodge Company, which went out of business in the early 1980s. As you can see in the previous photo, time had not been gentle with the NASL trophy. It lived in the back of people's uh, trunks and down in Dick's basement for a while. Uh, It had a broken figurine topper and a missing cup lid. Although reassembly proved relatively straightforward. A local uh, trophy repair company was able to reattach the figurine at the broken ankle And a replacement lid was taken from a non-historic cup that we found produced by the Weidlich Brothers Manufacturing Company of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, According to my conversation or correspondence with Jim Trecker, Weidlich is also the same manufacturer of the 1973 NASL Championship trophy that is on display at the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And so, thank you very much. I I just wanted to highlight some of these trophies, but by no means are these the only trophies that we know of um, related to you know, early soccer in Southeast. Um, We had the photo of the Wylam team from 1914 posing with the League Championship Cup. That's another trophy that I hope to track down. Uh, The whereabouts also of the uh, Eastern uh, Division Championship North American Soccer League trophy that was won by the Chiefs in 68 is is also currently unknown as well as other uh, sporadic trophies um, from the New Orleans, Birmingham and Atlanta leagues. And that's about it. And thank you very much for your time. Thank
5: you, Patrick. Wonderful to uh, get an underrepresented area um, talked about and presented about uh, here uh, at SASH. So Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We'll pull up uh, Kevin Talek-Marston's presentation. Kevin Talek-Marston teaches and researches history and governance at the International Center for Sports Studies. He is currently working on the history of the football transfer system in governance terms a biography of G.R. Manning and a book about the Oneida Football Club and how they claimed a place of legend in sporting mythology. So a hat trick of projects uh, for Kevin. Over to you, Kevin. Thank you very much
0: for, for the chance to speak. It's a, it's a real pleasure um, to share ideas with, uh, with all of you. And I'm really looking forward, especially to the discussion afterwards. Um, so, I entitled this to be or not to be a citizen or a subject. Maybe this is going to appeal to, uh, to the, uh, the literature um, buffs in, in the group here. Um, I wanted to begin this um, really with, with an idea to look at uh, the wider, wider issue of the question of 1950, the England-USA match. Um, I see David has already reacted. That's great. Um, So uh, go ahead, uh, Tom, you can go to the first slide. Joe Macca and his two teammates were not American subjects. That's the headline that you see at the top left um, from the Belgian newspaper Les Sports. It revealed that Macca was Belgian and had returned to his native country in the weeks following the incredible upset of England. The press in Belgium had asked whether Uh, The World Cup had been skewed whether England were unfairly beaten by a team of American foreigners. We know the end of the story since the case was closed three months later with the U.S. Federation, as you see, being fully exonerated and absolved by any violation of the Remake Cup regulations or the USSFA rules. So in a sense, why should we talk about this case any further? Uh, The reason I think we should is because I think things are slightly more complex than they may appear. So to be or not to be a subject, a national, a citizen, as Hamlet once declared far more poetically, to be or not to be is not as simple as it appears. The story of Macca and Company um, helps us historically revisit the idea of sporting nationality and nationality itself. And I know Zach has been working on this, so I look forward to his thoughts and reactions to this topic. The case clearly reveals a number of underlying inconsistencies in the attempts to establish an international regulatory order uh, for football, for soccer under FIFA, Uh, the ongoing tensions around the definition and acceptance of professionalism in this area, as well as the difficulties of defining nationality in globally agreed sporting and political terms. So in this paper, I'm going to recount the scandal, the basic facts, I'm going to try and frame the surrounding context. And I will discuss the actual nationality issue. And finally, highlight some of the points about the privileged position that the US Federation had, largely based on the management of personal relationships at the time, which made the, uh, the scandal a lot easier to manage, shall we say. Go ahead, Tom. So the front page article of Belgium's Lisbo found itself on FIFA General Secretary Dr. Ivo Schricker's desk in Zurich with a letter from Rodolphe William Sildreers, the Belgian executive committee member um, at the end uh, of August, early September in 1950. And Sildreers argued that FIFA must conduct an inquiry and explain that the USSFA registered MACA despite not asking for a release from the Belgian Federation, which had issued a formal protest at the time. Though I have to admit, I've scoured the FIFA archives um, for any trace of a protest by the Belgian Federation, and there is nothing between 1947 and 1950. There may be something internally um, in the Belgian uh, archives, and I've never been there, so um, perhaps that's a thing to follow up. In the meantime, Schricker had written to the USSFA with a copy to Gustav Manning, as you see down at the bottom of that letter, um, asking for clarifications and citing, as you see, Article Three of the Regulations of the World Cup, which is an interesting point that that's what he cites in his letter. We'll come back to it later on. So, what actually truly was at issue? The Belgian paper had alleged that MACA traveled back to Belgium sometime after returning from Brazil. And it said that he was no longer eligible to play as a foreigner because he was required to reside for two years in the country before playing on the first team of any Belgian club since he was a foreigner. In those days, efforts were made to limit the migration of journeyman professionals, especially in countries like Belgium, who were particularly reticent to support full professionalism and who were strictly uh, still essentially an amateur game. The Belgian rules uh, stipulated that the old club retained the player's registration, even if he traveled abroad. So Macca's old team in 1947, before he emigrated to the U.S., had released him to play for White Star AC, which was one of the top Division Two clubs. They finished that season actually in the second position, on the basis that he was still Belgian and therefore eligible. Next slide, please. However, as the season started. In September, the Belgian press claimed that upon arriving in Brazil, three players had presented non-U.S. passports. We know the story, Belgian for Macca, British for McIlvaney, and Haitian for, uh, for Um The immigration records, which um, I've come across, actually show that Macca and McIlvaney traveled with Belgian and British, um, but they both possessed a re-entry permit. Um, whereas, if you look on the left side, Gaetans had what was called an I four two four visa, which I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it is. But it is not at all the same status as as registered papers. And uh, another little tidbit, as you see, there was it was often claimed there were um, no other uh, foreign born players. Um, oh, actually, it's not on that slide. Sorry, never mind. I'll post that later. Um, that'll be in the paper for the SASH website. Um, but after uh, a week. Um, the Belgian press broke the news um, that, uh, that, uh, that the players were um, traveling on foreign passports. You can actually see that on the return flight um, on the right side, uh, which for whatever some reason all the players came back not on the same flight, um, the, uh, the, player, the team was divided into three different flights with the final flight returning home on the ninth. Uh, McIlvenny there on the ninth, and uh, Gatins at that point does return with a uh, residential permit, which allow, allows him to, to stay in the U.S. So there's a, a bit of a mystery around uh, Gaden, um his legal status at that point. Next slide, please. So, after the Belgian press broke the news, the weekly magazine France Football uh, went further and questioned whether the results of the remake cup should actually be nullified citing the regulations that players must be selected by the national associations concerned and be subjects of the country they represent. So that was the the main rule, set a primacy on sporting regulations with an additional legal and political aspect. But what does it mean to be the subject of a country in that sense? Interviewed by the Belgian and French papers in that early September period, Mack claimed he was still Belgian and therefore able to play immediately in the Belgian league, didn't have to wait two years. Yet, he had also completed an American naturalization form so that he would be eligible to represent the US when he was, um, when he, as he had lived there for three years. So someone in Belgian football either didn't want him playing for White Star in the second division, or more probably what I think is they wanted to make an example out of him in, in continuing the fight against outward professionalism in Belgium, which was seen as very mercenary. So the conundrum was very simple, and versus or. If Macca was Belgian, then was he able to play in Belgium without having to fulfill the two-year residency requirement for foreigners? Obviously. But then the question was whether he had been eligible to play the prior summer for the U.S. If he had entered a naturalization process to become American, was he still Belgian? Similarly, for and engagements, were they eligible to play in Brazil? What did it mean to play for one's country in an international competition? Was sporting nationality different from legal nationality? Why did Schricker, the FIFA General Secretary, refer to Article Three of the World Cup regulations while the newspapers mentioned Article 21? What was the applicable sporting regulation at the time? In 1950, FIFA had statutes and regulations that were different um, for the functioning of the organization and for the World Cup. The general FIFA FIFA statutes and regulations, quoted um, by the press, which you see in uh, in the middle of the screen, Uh, states very clearly that the players must be selected by the national associations concerned and be subjects of the country they represent. The World Cup regulations, however, down at the bottom left, offer a different perspective. It mentions, as stated by Schricker in his letter to the USSFA, rather openly that each association shall select representative teams from players who are subjects of its country and under its jurisdiction, comma, or who are eligible under the rules of the association and versus or. So, the question then, of course, is how are these three eligible uh, – were these three players actually eligible under the USSFA regulations? As we know, the regulations at the time allowed for residents with first papers. Those who have uh, made a declaration of intention to naturalize were then eligible under the USSFA Rule 46 B. And this is exactly uh, what Dr. Gus Manning explained to the FIFA Executive Committee on December 2nd, uh, 1950, when he presented evidence of the declaration of intention by the three players. Albeit, it seems a little less convincing for Gachins and McIlvaney since, uh, as you can see from the letter on the left side, Macca has his first papers with the number. It's very clear, it says what date it was filed, where it was. For Gachins and McIlvaney, it just says that they were filed. And I was hoping actually, um, when uh, we had the SASH conference in, in April, la, last April, to be able to travel and uh, check the, the records uh, there. But I obviously didn't have a chance to do that, so that's ongoing. I will, I will check that, watch this space, and we'll see whether or not they actually did have registered first papers. Naturalization in Sielgera of Belgium and much of the continent was traditionally interpreted under what um, under use sanguinis, the law of blood, and one could not lose in nationality, or at least under very restricted circumstances. In contrast, the U.S., even despite its large restrictions to immigration since 1921 and the 24 Immigration Acts, it followed the common law tradition of English use solis, or the the law of the land. The primacy of residence and deliberate choice to immigrate made the question of sporting nationality a complex one and FIFA recognized each association's autonomy in selecting its players in the 1934 and 38 World Cups. This worked to the advantage of some countries like Italy, which practiced its rimpatriati policy, also known as the oriundi, and again, I know, I know Zach has worked on this, um, and they obviously won two World Cups with it. But defining nationality by choice or by residence, something essential, essential to American identity, and the change from being a subject to some distant sovereign authority, to freely choose one's citizenship rather than being subjected to it are issues I think are worth exploring. Ultimately, FIFA's approach to nationality in the international standard left space with gaping holes in the regulations. Nonetheless, everything seemed sorted despite significant re- resistance from the Belgian uh, Rodolphe Seeldraers. He argued for serious consequences if other countries let players without transfer certificates play as you see highlighted on the minutes from from the right side. What was at stake, obviously, for Seelgeraers in Belgian football was the professional migration of players across borders in Europe. And Belgium had lost many players in the previous decades to French clubs or Czech and Central European clubs or Italian clubs and were tired of losing their players for professional mercenaries. So they had a much stricter approach to amateur football and uh, they looked on professional football with great disdain. Remember also that European football in 1950 was being threatened by breakaway competitions unrecognized under FIFA, such as Colombia's thriving pro league um, in 1949 and 1950. Uh, Next slide, please, which I think is the last one. Some closing thoughts. As a result, uh, FIFA began requiring each association to play the World Cup and presents, oh no, sorry, that's the next slide. Sorry, I already already spoke to them. Here we go. uh, to present their passports as of the World Cup 1954. You see the evolution between the regulations in 1934, 38, and 54. Um, in 34, uh, the, it was basically all based on sporting autonomy, that associations could do it how they believed, obviously based that, uh, that the regulations would apply. In 38, it then became a little bit more specific in that associations could choose under, um, that are subjects of their country, uh, but they could also have the option of players who, were, who received the permission of their association. God knows what that means. And then finally, after this scandal in 1950, um, the FIFA um, executive committee reviewed the competition regulations and made it clear that players should produce their passports. Um, so the primacy of legal nationality came after, after this scandal. In parallel to these sporting developments, it's surprising, actually, that the complaint came from Belgium Seeldreers, who was a veteran lawyer. He deliberately quoted only the first half of the World Cup regulations that conveniently omitted the OR clause, which absolved the USSFA of any wrongdoing. Moreover, he also had a close relationship with the US, traveling there often to visit his daughter, whose personal life scandals rocked New York high society in the late 1930s. I can tell you more about that if anyone's interested. Was he still bitter, maybe, that Belgium had lost to the U.S. in the 1930 World Cup? Maybe. But I suspect, rather, that he was on a personal crusade against outright professionalism in his country and wanted to make an example of Macca. Secondly, why didn't England complain? A few factors come into play. Firstly, obviously, one of their clubs, as many of you probably know, Man United, had signed McIlvaney after the, uh, the World Cup. And so it probably would not look very good or at least somewhat hypocritical for the FA to lodge a complaint about ineligible players when they themselves had signed one of these players and were benefiting from them. Or perhaps they didn't want to jeopardize their good relationship with the U.S. where many of the clubs were touring um, cities across the U.S. during the summer and making money off of the American market. And it's also important to remember England's long-standing disinterest in FIFA and the fact that they had only rejoined after World War II. In the end, FIFA needed the FA much more than the FA needed FIFA. Finally, the USSFA owed, I think, a tremendous debt to Dr. Gus and his diplomacy in managing that crisis. Manning argued for changing the USFA rules on representing the national team at the following USSFA convention in 1951, which appears to have temporarily been accepted, at least until '53, when it flipped, flipped back and they allowed um, players with first citizenship papers to play again, at least for a few years. But Manning was also reliant on his long friendship with General Secretary at FIFA, Schricker who was also a trained lawyer, and I think in his initial letter gave much of the clues to the answer by citing the other regulations that could be used to fight and combat um, Dreyer's complaint. So Manning worked with the awareness and subtle diplomacy in preserving those professional relationships. Yet I suppose um, it's a little bit ironic that he, the immigrant who he was, argued to make it more difficult to represent the U.S. in sporting nationality. And to close, I have a little fun surprise for everybody. Um, I don't know for those of you um, who uh, who've seen um, some of uh, some material. Apparently, um, this may be one of the only. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen this picture before. I've never seen this picture before. A couple of weeks ago, and it's a picture of the goal from a completely different angle, um, and it comes from a Brazilian. Uh, publication after the World Cup, which quotes as you see on the right, on the left side, apparently John Souza scored. So I don't. It's a joke. John, we, we know that Souza didn't score. But what we do know um, from this picture, uh, and if you zoom in, you can't see it very well on the on the screen here. But Gatians actually was wearing number eighteen, which answers a, a long debated question um, from uh, from a lot of people who wondered actually what number he wore. There was a great article by a journalist on ESPN a few years ago, Leander Lakins, um, who was trying to figure out that. And so I found this picture and I wanted to share it first with all of you at SASH because um, I thought it would be fun. And, uh, and there we go. So that's the end. I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you very much. Um, let's just keep rolling along here and uh, uh, we're moving on to Dan Creel and Zach is going to take over the hosting uh, to put his slides up, but I will introduce uh, a first time presenter at SASH. Dan Creel is currently working on research related to the American Soccer League, the US Open Cup, and the US Women's Open and Amateur Cup. His interests focus on the political, economic, and organizational aspects of the game from the grassroots to the national level. Dan lives in Maryland, and his earliest soccer memory is being taken to a match as a young child somewhere around Swindon, England. Dan, over to you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, thanks for
2: having me. Um, so this is my presentation is a Pecha Kucha, so it's going to move really quickly, 20 seconds per slide, uh, 20 slides, um, and I've got my notes on the side, so I'm going to try to keep an eye on the, the shared screen as things go along, and hopefully things will match up. So once... Zach goes to the second slide, that's when it'll start. Uh, The start for the focus on this specific season came from a general survey of the American Soccer League and the U.S. Open Cup that I've been working on over time. Research on the league during the changing 60s was interesting, and the 72 ASL season had some fun things, but the 1976 season just grabbed me with everything that was going on at that time. The original ASL formed in 1921 as the first understood major U.S. Soccer League. It was relatively successful through the late 20s, but basically collapsed in the early 30s due to a combination of infighting and the Great Depression. In the fall of 33, the ASL reorganized into separate New England and been atlantic leagues composed of amateur and semi-protein. In the late 60s, the ASL followed in the shadow of its younger sibling, the NASL. The ASL shed its traditional identity and turned itself into a U.S. minor league. Down to five teams, the league made a huge expansion in 72, including its first steps outside the Northeast. But turnover was high, and after the 75 season, the SL was back down to five teams. In 76, the league went truly national and expanded to the West Coast. Six clubs were added at a franchise fee of 60K each, bringing the total to 11. All teams were required to pay into a pool to defray the cost of cross-country travel, and Cork Hibernians played one game against each team with the results counting in the standings. Uh, The league mandated a cap of seven internationals. Bob Cousy began his second year as the mostly figurehead commissioner. There was an eight-round college draft. L.A. coach Ron Newman devised a point system, and teams played two 10-minute sudden-death OTs of tied. The league also planned a late-season East-West All-Star game. Former Dallas Tornado coach Ron Newman bailed the Skyhawks on a core of English footballers, many on loan from their clubs. Led by 76 MVP Jim Hinch and goalkeeper Brian Parkinson, the team rolled through the regular season. The team drew extremely well and defeated New York Apollo 2-1 to in the final before nearly 9,400 at their Van Nuys High School Stadium. The team the Skyhawks beat in the semifinal was fellow expansion Tacoma Tides. Co-owned by the Tacoma Twins and businessman Booth Gardner, the, twine, the Tides were the best run of the expansion clubs that had trouble drawing crowds to the Twins' Cheney Field. Former Cornell coach Dan Wood brought All-American Bruce Arena with him as reserve goalkeeper. The two best teams in the East were the New York Apollo and Rhode Island Oceaneers, with the Apollo beating Rhode Island in the semifinal. The Apollo were the reigning co-champion and top team in the league during their run in the 70s. Based in Providence, the Oceaneers had won the seventy-four championship in their first year and featured future Hall of Famer Tony DeChico in goal. The Connecticut Yankees struggled with attendance due to sharing Dillon Stadium with the NASL Bicentennials. In 76, the club split games there and at the East Haven Athletic Complex. The bottom of the East, New Jersey Americans, the lone Eastern Expansion Club, replacing the New Jersey Brewers. The team played at Wall Stadium, a speedway recently renovated to include a pitch. Halfway into the season, the league was in financial trouble. Four of the five Western clubs were behind in paying league fees, including the travel pool. The league canceled the ASL All Star Games scheduled for August, and it also suspended all interdivision play for the rest of the season. This meant revisions to the last half of the schedule on an ongoing ad hoc basis. The Sacramento Spirits had financial and personnel troubles the entire season. After only two games, 10 players rebelled against Coach Dick Ott. Initially suspended and fined, the players were quickly reinstated and given no-cut contracts. Dissension continued as multiple players were suspended and reinstated until Ott was fired midseason. The club ended the season bottom of the league. The Oakland Buccaneers were bankrolled by a Mexican Tequila distributor who promised to spend $750,000. The Bucs also signed a former Guadalajara coach to coach the team, and they brought in Lori Calloway as an assistant GM. The wheels quickly fell off as most of the front office, including the GM and co-owner, quit a month before the regular season due to a clash about player personnel. The troubles continued. After only a few weeks, the team moved from UC Berkeley to a high school stadium in Fremont, Oakland became Golden Bay. The primary owner backed out, leaving the club in debt, and the club barely kept afloat by a hodgepodge of business. At one point, the coach was fired but refused to leave and ended up staying on by sheer force of will. Utah joined the league only two months before the season to replace the defunct San Diego Surfs. Utah's original owner was bounced via a hostile takeover led by Tim Temmy. Deep in debt by June, Temmy got into a post-game fistfight with the league president. Somehow, Temmy got a black eye from Tony Escobar, his own goalie. ASL sued Utah for debts and suspended Temmy. Weeks later, the Spikers were kicked out of the league. Temmy refused to sell the franchise. The league awarded a completely new Salt Lake franchise to a Sacramento businessman who brought Utah's former goalie Escobar back in as the GM. The Pioneers took over the Spikers record and playoff spot. The Pioneers only played two home games at Area Fields, then lost to Tacoma in the first round of the playoffs. The season ended with Chicago edging out Cleveland for a playoff spot, but both teams had played one less game than originally scheduled. Kuzi ordered a forfeit against Chicago when the club didn't immediately respond to a mandate ordering the teams to play each other. Chicago's owner, Ernest Panos, publicly called Kuzi an inept commissioner, and the league itself a veritable Watergate of soccer. The week after an extremely successful final, Papers Nationwide ran an article talking about the near collapse of the league. Panos sued the ASL for a million dollars, and that fall, the Chicago, Golden Bay, and Utah franchises were all folded by the league. In December, Ron Newman left the Skyhawks to join the NASL's Miami Toros. Even clubs that weathered the season found issues in the off season. Tacoma, the best run Western franchise, folded after losing 200,000. Rhode Island was sold and renamed itself the New England Oceaneers to create distance from the Yankees and the Boston NASL franchise. Sacramento planned a stock offer to bring in cash, but was stymied by state regulators. Uh, there's so many interesting people associated with the season, both in 1976 and later. For example, Booth Gardner went on to co the Colorado Caribous, became governor of Washington State and coach the Kozars a team that won the women's national cup in the mid 80s Tim Temme fell afoul of authorities numerous times due to fraudulent business schemes and we all know what happened to that backup goalie so what's next i've done a good amount of print research through the 1980 season there's a ton to unpack and uncover both about this season and the ill-fated final decade of the ASL and spin-off USL i think there's good potential for a long-term piece and i'm currently thinking through whether to focus on this one year or a span of years thank you
5: Dan, thanks very much. That's really hard to do, to do the the Petra Kucha. And Tom, let me ask the question that
3: everyone was asking of Dan's presentation. Can you elaborate on the reference to the women with the Sacramento Spirits?
2: Yeah, yeah. and I can, after, afterwards, I can dig up a little bit more research. But they made a couple of comments in the paper that they were going to bring in at least two. Definitely, they basically said it's all but done. They were going to bring in two of the local players uh, from the local women's leagues at the time. I think they were going to be strikers, if I remember. Any idea who they were, just out of curiosity? Yeah. No, I dug a little bit. And they talk about the teams, I believe, but no names. And it just kind of disappeared.
0: Because there's one, there's one girl from Texas um, who was on a U.S. women's team that played in, the, in those um, unofficial women's world championships in Asia in the mid-late 70s. And she went, played in college. I can't remember. I'll have to dig out her name. I'd be curious if, but she was kind of, I came across her in the news as being a a big deal at that point. So I don't know if that crosses. Remind me and I will.
5: All right. On to uh, 1979. A labor (laughs) lawyer by day, Steve Holroyd has been researching and writing about American soccer history ever since the internet gave interested parties a forum. He also possesses a considerable library of soccer magazines, newspapers, and media guides. Steve's love for the game began in 1973, when the arrival of the Philadelphia Adams lured him in. 45 years later, he is still playing, and he is also coached, refereed, and served as an administrator. Over to you, Steve. Thanks, Tom. Um, um, I, I don't
3: know if apologizes the word up until a couple of days ago, this topic seemed like it would be particularly timely. Uh, but in light of the fact that the players and MLS have apparently reached agreement on a, um, a reopening strategy, as well as ratifying the original contract, we won't necessarily have to worry about strikes and lockouts for the near future, but we did have to worry about it in 1979. Now, Tom, we going to go with my signal. How are we going to do the uh, yes? that's okay. fine. Yep. I have a lot of slides. Don't laugh, Dave. I'll, I'll cripple you when we do get together and play. Um, uh, I have a lot of slides. It, it, it's meant for everyone to read after the fact. So I'm going to really kind of blow through this to stick within my 10, limit, uh, 10 minute uh, limit. Um, so uh, if we could just move right along. Um, next one. Uh, real fast believe it or not, athletes, just like most other workers in the United States, do have the right to organize. Baseball's had a union for years, obviously. There's a great history there. American football, uh, basketball started by future American Soccer League Commissioner Bob Cousy has got a union. Uh, Hockey, of course, has a union. Um, English football has a union. Uh, Jimmy Hill uh, sort of energized it in the late 1950s, uh, broke the maximum wage, and of course went on to be a part owner of the Detroit Express uh, here in the North American Soccer League, soccer in America, not not surprisingly, given the fact that the sport was largely semi-pro through most of its history, and probably because of some cultural issues uh, with the largely immigrant participation, no real evidence of any attempt uh, by soccer players to organize earlier. But that's not to mean they were pushovers. For instance, in 1930, a number of players with the New York Giants lodged a complaint with the USFA, alleging they hadn't been paid. Uh, it was resolved, but uh, with those troublesome Brown family up there, but uh, but the, they managed to get paid. So it showed that they weren't pushovers. So, but overarching question many people have, why union? We're so focused on individual contracts when we talk about players, what's the point of a union? Well, there are a lot of issues common to all players. Uh, pensions, uh, health benefits, free agency eligibility, things like that, that's best accomplished through an overall contract. And laterally, um, unions play an important role Particularly in franchise leagues, not so much single entity leagues, and allowing salary caps to be in place, which would otherwise be illegal as an unlawful restraint of trade under antitrust acts. So, let's talk about the first attempt of players to organize in this country: the North American Soccer League Players Association. It began in 1977, which was a great year for the NASL. It was very much in growth mode, um, riding the, the coattails of the Pele, of the goodwill from Pele's farewell tour. At the same time, many players, particularly the American ones, could see that opportunities for them were decreasing. And indeed, uh, their concerns uh, came about in April of 77 when a former coach named John Young said, American players are being discriminated against. The owners don't want them playing because they fear a player's union. Into the breach stepped another Scotsman, John Carr, a Scottish-born Canadian international, finishing his career with the Washington Diplomats. And he began to take steps to form a union similar to to the Big Four. He knew he needed an ally. Unfortunately, he didn't pick the best ally, he picked the closest one. Uh, the only one of the big four who was located in Washington was the NFLPA, and in hindsight, he could have made a worse pick. In the summer of 77, the North American Soccer League Players Association was formed with Ed Garvey named as executive director. Not coincidentally, Garvey was also the executive director of the NFLPA, and he was authorized to help assist uh, the NASLPA as it got off the ground. Um, little prelude, in order to become a, a recognized union, you have to prove you have support uh, and uh, under federal, American federal labor law. By July of 1977, approximately 300 players had signed cards authorizing the NASLPA as their bargaining representative and the union then filed a petition for election with the National Labor Relations Board in August of 77. 13 days later, Garvey submitted a demand for recognition, trying to bypass the process, on, NASL, on NFLPA stationery, which would cause problems. Uh, typically, elections are easy to get. In this case, however, the, the North American Soccer League raised a number of issues. They challenged the legitimacy of the NASLPA, saying basically it was a front for the NFLPA, pointing out among other things, the demand came on NFLPA letterhead. They also argued, no, I'm sorry, go back. They also argued, um, A league-wide election was inappropriate. It should have been team by team, which would have meant, you know, 18 individual collective bargaining agreements. And interestingly, they also argued the union was a competitor employer because it had begun to operate soccer camps. Uh, A hearing on these issues was heard September of 1977, but it wasn't until June 30 of 78 that the NRB finally issued its decision, essentially siding with the NASL Players Union, although it did exclude the two Canadian teams as being outside the jurisdiction. Um, the election was held and the union won uh, rather resoundingly and was certified as the exclusive bargaining representative for players of September of 78. Because of quirks in administrative law, however, the NASL couldn't appeal the board's decision directly. Instead, in order to get the matter into the courts, it would basically have to deliberately break the law and refuse to bargain in order to get what's called a test of certification. And so when the NASLPA made a request to bargain in September 12 of 78, it was ignored by the NASL. Uh, the, uh, the union filed charges, the NORB issued complaint, and uh, filed a motion for summary judgment for February 2nd of 79, where it sat. Um, ordinarily, uh, don't do that, I'll uh, no, no, go back, I'm, there's an itch. Um, ordinarily, you, know, you would just sit and wait uh, because the parties, uh, the employer in particular, is required to maintain the status quo as far as working conditions, and we'll talk about that a bit more. However, the NASL was, was trying to get cured. In January of 79, the league requested 246 working visas from the U.S. Department of Labor, one more than in 1978, but it's important to note 476 players used the allotted visas in 78 because you could swap them out. The union challenged the number requested, arguing that the NASL was trying to push American players out of the league, pointing out there were plenty of available American players to replace players who might have left um, a a visa. Basically, the union was challenging the revolving door policy the NASL had in place. Um, The DOL essentially sided with the union, reducing the number of visas to 220, and more important, ruled that a visa cannot be reused unless the initial player was injured or quit voluntarily and left the country. It also basically doubled the minimum salary required under a visa. So it was a big win for the players, which left them feeling rather emboldened. A little side note, uh, two players, Uh, Kevin Keelan with New England, David Robb with Tampa Bay, uh, had filed charges against the union with the NORB, claiming that the union was being discriminated, it was discriminated against foreign players, charges were dismissed. Um, Now, while the NASL had already won the right to be recognized, had already been certified, it was growing impatient with the the process. And so it decided to further um, flex its muscle, having succeeded before to do well, and decided it would try to force the league to drop its legal appeal and come to the bargaining table. So prior to the uh, 1979 season, uh, the players began to threat the strike. Now, again, as opposed to most strikes, which are designed to provide, put pressure on an employer to provide more money or better benefits, the goal of this strike was to get the players that which they already had, the right to sit down and bargain. Um, the union set a deadline of March 31st for the league to come to the table, uh, if the league was not at the table, they would, the union would then take a strike vote. League didn't come to the table, and the players voted basically two to one to strike. On Friday, April 13th, the NASLP announced that the players were on strike. And at that moment, the union learned, which many unions both before and since have learned, there's a deep drink of water between talking about a strike and actually going on strike. That weekend, there was a wide disparity in participation, um, Some games, utterly unaffected, uh, other games, chaos. Uh, Here's three quick examples, which I won't read to, except California, which is pictured there. They actually had five regulars picketing outside uh, the uh, stadium in Anaheim. Um, Two great examples, though. Fort Lauderdale strikers lived up to their name. 16 players walked out, and they were forced to play Coach Ron Newman, who's uh, pictured there, uh, along with players picked up off the street and two scabs, George Best and Nene Kabeas, in a loss to a Washington team that lost only three players due to the strike. Detroit, Express missing only two players, faced a Memphis team that only had one regular playing, and his agent was the goalkeeper. Particularly emblematic of the chaos surrounding the strike was the Cosmos. The Cosmos initially voted 20-2 to in favor of the strike. Giorgio Canaya, shockingly, was one of those who was against it. However, 14 regulars changed their minds and went to Atlanta to play and everyone was watching this. Indeed, press reports indicate that players from around the league were calling in Atlanta and asking, is Beckenbauer striking? And when finding out he wasn't, they didn't as well. Ultimately only 143 players, less than a third of the league actually went on the strike and most of them American. Nevertheless, the union vowed to continue saying that the participation was less than expected because of um, issues with immigration laws. Immigration laws tend to pop up in American soccer an awful lot, going back all the way to 1894. In 1979, the issue was whether foreign players who decided to cross the line and, stru- and play would be deported as strikebreakers, which is prohibited. Conversely, the owners were telling players that if the foreign players that if they participated in a strike, it could get them deported. So while that issue was up in the air, Garvey was scrambling to save face. On April 16th, the union offered to end the strike and promised not to strike again, even if there was no agreement on a collective bargaining agreement uh, when they got to the table, if the, if the NASL would come to the table. The NASL ignored the offer. On April 17th, Garvey Kerr and representatives from several other teams met with the Cosmos players to try to convince them to join the strike, knowing that if the, as the Cosmos went, the rest of the league would go. The Cosmos demurred. Um, that same day, INS killed what little support for the strike was left among the foreign players by announcing that foreign players on a current visa, in other words, not brought in to be strike breakers, would not be deported. At that point, with the strike largely an all-American prospect, uh, the league called the strike off. Now, the denouement of the strike. Uh, with the strike and utter failure, the NASL returned to business as usual and had a successful year at the gate uh, with its highest average, uh, over just over 14,000 at that point. Um, two weeks after the strike, the NRB finally issued its decision affirming the election decision and finding that the league had unlawful, unlawfully refused to bargain, which is what the league had been waiting for. They filed an appeal to the U.S. Court of uh, Common Pleas. On March 21st of 1980, the Fifth Circuit affor- affirmed the nrb 's decision, uh, effectively ending the NASL's challenge to the appropriateness of the union in the bargaining unit, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied a petition review to that October 14, Now. Now, after the fair, failed strike, though, at that point, you know, again, we still a lot of time between uh, April of 1979 and uh, in October of 1980. The NSL now felt emboldened and begun, began making some changes to working conditions. The problem is, as I said earlier, you're supposed to maintain the status quo. So the union starts filing a new set of unfair labor practice charges to the league's decision to do a bunch of things. Reduce roster size, playing indoor soccer for 1979-80, increase the schedule. Uh, The NRB is agreeing with all that and is issuing a complaint and also took the extraordinary step of seeking injunctive relief, requiring a restoration of the status quo, and voiding player contracts that had been signed and things like that. Uh, The injunction was granted August 18 of 1980. The NASL appealed that, and that appeal was denied October 6, 1980. And with the Supreme Court's denial of the representation case, the election appeal, eight days later, the NASL knew it was finally beaten. So here we go. Having fought the uh, North American Soccer League Players Union for about three years, the league then did in the unexpected and basically rolled over at the bargaining table. After only uh, four all-night sessions, the parties reached the agreement December 5, 1980, and the agreement was probably richer than NASL could afford at the time. It included a 25% increase in minimum salaries, 10, 10% relocation bonus if you were traded or waived, um, guaranteed contracts. And interestingly, in lieu of immediate free agency, a two-year option clause that provided a, 17, a guaranteed 70% wage increase. And make no mistake, the, the union was out for blood. Indeed, Tony Chursky had this great quote saying, look, they could have had their sweetheart deal if they recognized us at the beginning. They fought us. They lost. Um, you, know, here's the, you know, Garvey was a little more politic saying, hey, it's a great agreement. Sure. The aftermath, and this is what people are most interested in. Well, first, let's talk about the immediate aftermath. Uh, While they may have reached agreement on the collective bargaining agreement, there was some bad blood along the way. Uh, After the 1979 season, a number of player representatives and strikers found themselves traded or cut, including some interesting examples. For instance, uh, future U.S. Hall of Famer uh, and California surf player rep Al Trost was traded to future Canadian Hall of Famer and Seattle player rep Tony Chersky after the 79 season, future Hall of Famer and Cosmos player rep Bobby Smith was traded to San Diego during the 79 season. And someone who should be in the Hall of Fame, Chet Messing, who honored the line and did not play when Rochester went on strike, um, never played in the North American Soccer League again after the 79 season, despite starring in the, in the Indoor League into the early 1980s. And, of course, lost in the news of the of the contract being signed was other news. in the first week of December 1980, three teams, Rochester, Washington, and Houston, folded. The first franchise losses in the NASL since 1976. The league was not healthy, and now the lack of flexibility that the CBA uh, provided did not help. The league folded after the 84 season, as we all know. Ironically, though, that was the first year of a successor collective bargaining agreement with the union, one which contained a salary cap. Again, something that's illegal outside the confines of the CBA, so the league actually helped, the union actually helped the league exist one more year, but as we now know, too little too late. So here's the summary. Uh, people often ask, you know, well, who's to blame? The league, my point, my, my view is the union didn't kill the NASL, and frankly, the strike of 79 was barely an itch to be scratched, however, union's presence and more to the point the league's decision to battle the union for as long as it did certainly handicapped the league as far as shoring up fissures that began to be exposed in its base after the great expansion of 78 Um, but I want to point this out though the league wasn't totally crazy while the legal arguments it offered were frankly I say this as a labor attorney kind of frivolous the, the league had greater concerns it must be recalled that the league was also in the process of suing the NFL because the NFL had passed a rule prohibiting NFL owners from owning any other teams, which was seen as a direct shot at the NASL, which was largely being bankrolled by Lamar Hunt and to a lesser extent the Robbie family in Fort Lauderdale. So the the league could be excused for thinking that the players' union, backed as it was by the NFL players' union, was a mole. So, you know, unfortunately, while, while ostensibly fighting against the NFL, all the NASL did was manage to shoot itself. Again, let's talk about these, the status quo with working conditions again. Because of that, the NASL was unable to consider cost-saving moves post-78, um, such as uh, you know perhaps reducing roster sizes, cutting salaries. The most fatal blow may very well be that because of that status quo issue, the NASL decided against staging an indoor season to compete against the new major indoor soccer league in 78-79. The league probably thought it wasn't worth the inevitable litigation, and indeed they went wrong when they tried it. in Seventy nine eighty, there was litigation. The end result was the MISL had the winner of seventy eight seventy nine all to themselves, establishing a foothold. But more important, allowing it to become the NASL's primary rival going forward. It's interesting to note that given the MISL's raging, albeit short lived success um, in its first ten years, it in stark contrast to NASL had a great relationship with its union embraced unionization and had a solid working relationship with the mislpa which was led by none other than john kerr ultimately the failures of the nasl in addressing union issue was a microcosm of those that ultimately doomed the league short-sighted ownership and battles between native players and imports Um, for those interested in a deeper presentation because i know i blew through this because of uh i don't want to take up all the time uh, tim hanlon who's on the call uh, hosted a, a wonderful discussion. The link is there as part of his Good Seat Still Available podcast. Um, it is John Kerr son, uh, I don't know if he knows much about it. Well, I don't know if he was that involved with the MASLPA to tell you the truth. Citations, obviously, uh, Soccer American local newspaper articles. And I thank you for your time.
5: Wow. Uh, such a tour through uh, uh, the ASL and the NASL. And uh, Zach – Jay is our next speaker and he will uh, uh, take over uh, the uh, sharing capabilities here uh, as he will be the last uh, presenter uh, today. So to introduce Zach, he is a PhD candidate at Penn State University whose work relates to the history of identity formation through multiple football codes in the United States and around the globe. He's currently working on a dissertation project related to the national identity of foreign-born players in international soccer tournaments, as well as a book on regional identities in American college football. And congratulations to Zach uh, for recently passing his qualifying exams. Over to you, Zach.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Tom. You know, it's Great to be here with all of you for the Society for American Soccer History, second edition of our First Friday Zoom Symposia. I hope this becomes a regular tradition. And we'll be talking about that soon enough in our annual annual general meeting. Uh, This is a Pecha Kucha though, so let's roll right in and get going over the next seven minutes. I'm here today to talk to you about a topic that might seem a bit out of place for a series of presentations on American soccer history. Specifically, I want to take the next few minutes to talk about an underappreciated impact that American-born women have had on Mexican soccer. For most American soccer fans, the first thing that probably comes to mind when thinking about Mexican soccer is the history of Dosa Cero, most memorably executed here by Landon Donovan in the United States in the 2002 World Cup round of 16 in South Korea. What likely does not come to mind is the long history of Mexican women's soccer dating back to the first two unofficial Women's World Cups at the beginning of the 1970s. The Mexican women took third in Italy in 1970, then lost in the final at home at Estadio Azteca in front of 110,000 spectators in 1971. Mexico failed to capitalize on these early successes. FIFA failed to sanction a Women's World Cup for another two decades, despite the successes of the 1971 tournament. With few opportunities to play, Mexican women struggled to gain a foothold when the World Cup returned in 1991. When Mexico finally returned to the Women's World Cup in 1999, they relied on a large contingent of naturalized Mexican-American women. With the US women's national team overloaded with talent, Mexico took advantage of Mexican ancestry to build their squad. At the 1999 World Cup, Mexico landed in the group of death. In total, Mexico included 10 Americans on their 1999 World Cup roster. Eight saw action in at least one match, starting with seven American-born starters in the opening 7-1 loss to Brazil. Five American-born players started the second match, and two others entered as subs in the 6-0 loss to Germany. In the final Group B match, Mexico could not replicate its 1971 World Cup semifinal victory, as Italy prevailed 2-0 against a team featuring six American-born starters. After the 1999 World Cup, Mexico failed to qualify in 2003 and 2007, losing to Japan in a qualifying playoff both times. American-born women, including team captain Monica Gonzalez, played critical roles along the way, however, as Mexico did reach the 2004 Olympics. When Mexico qualified for the Olympic tournament in Athens, they included six American-born players on their final 18-woman roster, In addition to Gonzalez, a new generation of Mexican-American talent like San Diego-born Vyoselina Valderrama suited up for La Tri. One player, Santa Ana-born Marlene Sandoval, used her participation in 2004 to springboard onto the 2011 World Cup roster as well. She is one of just five women among 29 American-born Mexican stars to play in more than one tournament for the country. When Mexico finally returned to the Women's World Cup in 2011, Sandoval was joined by five other American-born women on the final roster. Three of the six women started in the 1-1 draw against England, and four were included in the starting 11 in the final two matches. On the final match day of the group stage, Mexico needed to beat New Zealand and for Japan to defeat England to advance. Neither happened, as New Zealand scored in the 90th minute and again in stoppage time to salvage a 2-2 draw while England downed Japan 2-0. Four years later, three of those American-born players, Alina Garcia-Mendez of Los Gatos, California, Monica Alvarado of Santa Monica, California, and Veronica Perez of Hayward, California, featured among the dozen Americans playing on Mexico's 2015 World Cup roster. Stuck in another group of death, Mexico finished behind France, England and Colombia. Four starters against Colombia were born in the US. That number increased to five against England, though it dropped back down to three in the decisive finale against France. Mexico is hardly unique in its reliance on foreign-born talent with ancestral roots. These women represent a broader trend of naturalized players in women's and men's tournaments. Since 1990, the percentage of foreign-born players on World Cup rosters follows a similar upward trend line to the men's tournament. What makes the United States unique in this regard is its position as a global exporter of talent as compared to other nations. American-born talent is suited up for 18 different national teams other than the U.S. at either the Women's World Cup or the Summer Olympics since 1991. While Mexico might not be unique in this regard, they still comprise the largest diaspora of American-born players on other women's national teams around the globe. Of the 76 American women that have adopted new citizenship to play international soccer, nearly 40% of those players have worn the crest of Latri. Proximity certainly factors into Mexico's position as a key importer of American born talent. Given that all but four of the 29 Mexican Americans who have played for Latri hailed from the border states of Arizona, California, and Texas, a long history of border fluidity sets up a large diaspora from which to select. We must also ask the question as to where U.S. soccer seeks talent and where they are overlooking demographics that afford opportunities for other countries to swoop in and offer citizenship in a playing spot. Must the U.S. continue to risk sacrificing valuable women's talent to a longtime rival? The border crossings of American women to Mexico helped fortify a team unable to build on an early history of success. With further study, we will gain a better understanding about the push and pull factors that lead soccer players to seek international opportunities away from their homelands. Thank you.
5: Tremendous, Zach. And that concludes uh, quite a lineup. Uh, of presentations, uh, different topics, different styles of presentation, but uh, thank you to uh, everyone. So I'd love to open it up uh, to some question and answers. So please, questions uh, uh, first.
1: I have one for Kevin. I'm sure he is really surprised about that, um, if I may jump in. Uh, but You know, I'm really curious if there's ever been documentation as to how they define subject. You know, I think a big thing that comes down to it is is if you're a subject of a country, a subject of a nation, you know, does that mean you're paying taxes within it? Does it mean that you're, you know, you can call on the fire department if necessary? um do you have to have full citizenship rights to be subject to the laws of a nation while you're living there and so i'm just curious has fifa ever weighed anything down more specific to that
0: i'll preface my my answer i'm i'm not a sports lawyer um but uh but i'll try and answer as best as best as possible i mean the 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 question of of definition of subject, I think, is fascinating. And I, going into this, I started to read about the history of nationality in the U.S. Um, going through, um, there's a there's an absolutely fascinating literature. And I, I don't know. I mean, aside from Steve, I don't know if there are any other lawyers in the, in the group. But um, there's an an amazing development of um, jurisprudence um, and, and cases um, from the mid 19th century that define what an American citizen um, is and what a foreigner is, how a foreigner is considered under American law um, in terms of being under the jurisdiction of, and being a subject of, and there are some incredible cases of people who were, you know, this brings up the whole question of, of first papers um, in the naturalization process, but there are even apparently cases in um, there was a a very famous case at the end of the 19th century of an Austrian, a Czech um, uh, refugee who fled, um, was picked up, um, emigrated to the U.S. and then was working in Turkey, got stuck in in Turkey, picked up and the Austro-Hungarian umpire kidnapped him and they put him on a boat and they were trying to bring him back. And the U.S. claimed him, even though he wasn't a citizen, they claimed him and said, we protect him because he emigrated and he put down I, I don't even think he was first papers but he wasn't a diplomat there was some some incredible story behind that now how does that link to, to sport um, is um, you know, F- FIFA at least up into the 1950 situation there was no I've never come across any any developed idea or concept of what nationality means and it's still um, it's still an ongoing debate and you have you know you have the, the question of people who can represent countries at youth level up to the age of, you know, under 23 and then can change. Um, But what I think is interesting in this case is there is a a real divide between countries that follow a, let's what I described, and I don't have time to go into this, but the whole use solis, use sanguinis, um, you know, the blood and the land, you know, is, is citizenship defined by residency, In which case, um, you know, FIFA seems to define that and say, oh, well, you know, if you live and if you change your association after two, three years, depends on the years, you can play for a new association you can play for a new country. Um, So there is a there's a certain element of residency that that plays into sporting nationality, quote unquote. Um, But if you want to know more, I think I put you in touch with the the colleague of mine here who did his did his PhD on sporting nationality. He's the guy who knows everything about it. I am. He's way, way more qualified stuff about that than I. am.
1: Totally. Yeah. Well, thanks for to you know, sure. speaking to what you know about it for sure. For what Zach.
3: it's worth, Zach, for what it's worth, Zach, I I, I pulled Black's Law Dictionary, mm. and interestingly, it defines subject, and and it has a definition, but then it has an explanation, which is what. Um, a lot of uh, an annotation, if you will. And it talks about, uh, basically, subject is a broader term than citizen. Um, uh, you know, uh, people who are subject to the power of the state and to its jurisdiction, and as owing to it, at least temporarily, fidelity and obedience, can be subjects. So I suppose, assuming um, that, because uh, again, definitions evolve, Assuming this is kind of the language that was in place back then, back in the you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, um, it, would, it would seem to indicate that FIFA had an understanding that uh, the, the subject might include resident aliens.
0: Well, at least, um, at least in terms of uh, FIFA, and that was a huge debate in the 1930s on the nationality criteria. And this is where I think you've worked on this already, Zach, on the question of the oriundi. Um, the South American players and all of the Italian diaspora who were called back under fascist Italy to represent the nation. Um, But the, you know, FIFA had a problem with it because they tried, you know, FIFA doesn't understand nationality anyway. Look, they, they give nationality to four British countries and there's an an exception that's built into the FIFA system. They admitted uh, Bohemia in 1907 as a country from a sporting perspective. And then, you know, they kicked him out. You know, they, the, the whole notion of, of what sporting nationality is, and even up to today, I know the, there was a huge case with Gibraltar um, over the last 25 years, and they finally got record recognized by UEFA, um, you know, I think it was uh, six, seven, eight years ago. But they tried to get recognized by the Olympic Committee and by, uh, by, then, by FIFA already in 1991 without any success.
3: And, of course, as we know, if you own an, an Irish setter, you are eligible to play for the Irish national team. Hey,
5: so, hey, hey, but, easy there, but, right? Jack's yeah. army, right? Yeah, Jack Jackie <laughs> Troll prove that. <laughs> the, the, the joke was a two-week holiday. Um, Zach, have you ever come across the, the Flores twins, Sabrina and Monica?
1: I have not. Okay. Um... It would it, it would it probably, you know, I've only looked into Olympic and World Cup rosters so far, like the, the players that made those final teams. Got it.
5: So you might have missed them. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there are definitely, you know, part of what I need to be looking, you know, this is very preliminary research that I'm going into um, that kind of ties into the larger dissertation.
5: Well, th- th- this is cool because they're twins. Um, grew up in New Jersey. Both went to Notre Dame and I just did a quick check. Monica joined the Mexican national team in 2016 and her sister Sabrina, who I think was a little bit better, still had hopes of maybe cracking into the U.S. team, had represented the U.S. at the youth levels. She joined the Mexican national team in 2018. So you have these two New Jersey born, I think Mexican Romanian roots plus U.S. roots, and they're both now in, in the Mexican women's pool. And my son is friends with both of them, so I could get you uh, an email or a contact if it's of interest. So they so they join up at different points.
1: Nice. Yeah, it'd be great to learn more about that. And you know, there are definitely stories beyond just those those giant tournaments you know I think even looking at regional tournaments looking at right um, and she could be joining I think one of them is playing in Valencia Spain
5: for their women's team so I mean they're still trying I mean they're in their early 20s so they they could potentially by the next world cup represent Mexico
1: nice yeah I'll have to look more into that so thank you
0: you got it can I ask a question oh if anyone I don't know if anyone else I, I got loads of questions for lots of people, but I'll, I'll just throw a couple questions at Patrick really fast. Um, uh, really interesting. Uh, everybody's really interesting, but um, Patrick, to begin with you, um, you mentioned the, young, it was the YMGC. Um, mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if I wasn't, was there any link to the YMCA at all or is that completely separate? And then, When you talked about the the break between 1902 and 1912, which seems to be a period of break in a lot of places um, across the country, Um, I was curious if you had any idea why, why there's no more evidence for any games or or presence of the game. Um, And then the last little bit on that was just, did you say in passing, Dick Cecil was donating his material somewhere?
6: Yeah. To start with the last question, Dick is donating his papers to Emory University. In fact, they're already been they've been accessioned. Um, Emory is also talking, but I'm not sure what the status is about uh, purchasing the trophy as well. And then we're working to hopefully have it uh, on a temporary display or rotating display in and around the city, and also at Mercedes Benz with some kind of associated um, <clears throat> Chiefs uh, related uh, you know exhibit. Um, as far as the break in Alabama soccer in the Birmingham district, from what I can gather is there was, a, there was a violent minor strike in and around 1902, 1903. Please keep in mind that the TCI, which is the Tennessee, um, Tennessee Coal and Iron Railroad, which eventually becomes a subsidiary of U.S. Steel, they were the ones that essentially monopolized and owned all of the coal mining facilities iron and then later steel manufacturing or most of it in and around birmingham so you had a violent miner strike in and around 1902 uh, and, I, and it's that's why i'm guessing you had the, the break there um, when you had atlanta reforming they were sending out invitations to um, clubs in and around the south in 1911 1912 That's what kind of spurred um, the reformation of the league in Birmingham. Um, Cardiff, which was, uh, you know, the big team earlier, uh, they kind of faded away again when they had later strikes. um, And then, of course, the fire in 1920. And that was essentially it for Cardiff. And really, Cardiff is nothing more than that building that I showed you and a couple houses now. There's nothing left of it. Um, And what was your first question? I apologize, Kevin. Um,
0: It was... On the
6: YMCG. Oh, yeah. There, there is no association with the YMCA. It's actually still in operation. It's the New Orleans Athletic Club uh, and still exists in New Orleans today. Um, they have – this is something that I've been trying to work with uh, John Lee's granddaughter. They have their archives at New Orleans University, but with the pandemic, um, you know, obviously we haven't been able to access that. So that's the, one of the next steps that we're looking to do uh, moving forward.
5: Patrick, can I jump in and ask a question? I mean, I, I've read that that book on New Orleans. I'm sure, which yeah. you know, you used a reserve judgment, you know, in a public forum here. But I mean, who who else out there is doing Southern soccer history going back into the 19th century, early 20th century? Are you a lone ranger? Um, have you encountered other people?
6: Um. Not too many. There was, um, and I'm blanking on his name, there was one fellow who had started to dig around on the Atlanta um, players back in the early 20th century. Um, Jason Longshore, who I collaborated with, he's the uh, color uh, radio color commentator. Uh, He and I worked together. We're working with Dick, so he's done some work, but I think I've, aside from that, I'm not really too familiar with uh, anybody else who's really kind of dug into it, I guess, as much as as I know I have, but uh, I don't really know. And like I said, New Orleans is something that I kind of recently jumped into and just kind of reached out to John Lee's granddaughter through Ancestry, or was able to track her down actually through white pages of Ancestry. but um, So that's kind of just, uh, that's really at the outset as far as that goes. Birmingham has been my uh, focus over the past year or so.
5: Keep it up, keep going. There's a lot there. Thank you. And I'm gonna ask, Kurt Roush, a question. Uh, when we were talking, what fascinated me was his take on the shipyard teams. Can you kind of go over again your, your, your argument there um, in terms of kind of being powerful, but a negative, uh, you know, for the development of soccer at the same time?
4: Oh uh, Yes, they... Um they actually wielded a lot of power. It was certainly about money back then. And they, they were able to uh, provide uh, jobs for, for these players, uh, sometimes no-show jobs for these players and pay them you know, quite, quite large salaries and sometimes just for, for uh, playing soccer. And they, they would uh, see a lot of the players had gone to war, uh, and there was any team that would be pretty much out there with with a few really good players left these uh, shipyard teams would would come in and and you know take those players to, uh, those teams would uh, really collapse pretty much after that but a lot of these uh uh shipyard you know they they didn 't really respect any any uh contracts that these players were under so they they would tamper and you know get people to, to break their contracts. And, and it was just a very negative, negative impact on, on the smaller teams. But you know, as I mentioned, they did form quite, quite solid teams. And, and they were able to, uh, to be quite choicey in their selection of players. So you know, they, they would have a, a large stable of, of, of great players. But um, uh, they put a lot of teams under uh, and, and by that process.
5: Thanks. Any other questions out there, or can we uh, move? Oh, Kevin, I see a, a left uh,
0: hand. I also, I saw Jeff raise his hand a little, like right before you saw him. I don't know if Go. I am Yes, chime in.
7: Hi, um, I'm Jeff Organ. I'm a new member of SASH. Uh, I actually have a blog um, called Texas Soccer Journal that I've been writing for about three years. And um, over the last three years, I've done a little bit of writing about um, Texas soccer history. Um, we're not exactly part of the South, to be honest with you. I'm not sure what we exactly are part of, but um, in any event, uh, citizens of your own republic, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess one could say that too. I'm, I'm an import from California, so I'm not sure I fit that mode. But uh, but in any event, um, you know, why I, I, I'm really interested to collaborate potentially with Patrick at some point in the future to maybe extend a little bit further west and. And because there are a lot of commonalities, I found some early connections, um, for example, with New Orleans. You would assume that with Galveston and before at Indianola, that the same kinds of things that happened in New Orleans were going on in those cities, too. And, uh, and I have found some evidence of that, but I've got a lot more work and, and uh, need to do some of it. But I guess um, I'm going to have to drop off in a couple of seconds because actually I have a phone call with uh, the head coach from the San Antonio Thunder um in the uh, in north american soccer league and i've been doing a series over the last couple of months in conjunction with san antonio fc uh because it's the 45th anniversary of the thunder this year and uh because san antonio fc obviously they're not playing in the usl um any content that they get is appreciated so uh it's been uh it's been very pleasant but i do want to um let everybody know that i followed um just about everybody on this blog for years and everybody on this site for years and i'm uh Really proud now to be a member of SASH, and I look forward to, uh, to doing more of this kind of work in the future. Thank you very much, guys.
3: Uh, Jeff, thank you. Jeff, Jeff,
7: before you're on, yeah.
3: you, you've heard my Philadelphia Adams connection. Do you
7: know the brief San Antonio connection?
3: Uh, yes, yeah. I do,
7: actually. And, in okay. fact, we communicated a couple of years ago. Oh, do we? Okay, we good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, when the San Antonio uh, FC had a thunder back night. In 2017, and I wrote an article about it then, and we talked about that. Okay. Um, I and, and Steve, I was going to reach out to you because I found an interesting bit of tidbit about that uh, the draft that um, the uh, San Antonio people did for the Adams before they, you know, they vanished in a week. Um, and there's kind of an interesting tidbit that I'll share with you about. Uh, well, they drafted Winston Dubose. Yeah, who, who 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 actually conducted that draft? It's kind of a oh, fascinating okay. story. Oh. All right, I look forward
5: to that. And and Jeff, welcome, of course, from all of us. And before you go, um, Scott Reynolds is on this call. um, And uh, I know he has some really solid connections and contacts in the Dallas area, um, you know, during his time at FC Dallas. So he's now in Salt Lake, but uh, he's uh, another person you can, you know, get in touch with and
7: talk Texas uh, soccer history with. That's fantastic. I look forward to it, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm dropping off. Thank you, guys.
0: Hey, Jeff. Will anybody kill me if I ask a couple more questions? Or no, go for it.
5: I mean, we've got just, the know. we've got the diehards here now. So, ah.
0: right? <laughs> no, just this is this is such a great time to be able to chat with everybody and ask questions and learn so much. So, um, I get really excited about. It. Um, I, for Kurt, um, I was I was curious if you what you know more about the Agars because um, they're people that. We see their names in the, uh, in the Spalding guides and things, but I, I'm, it seems to me they're really important, interesting. I want to know more. I hope somebody will write a biography of these guys or at least like, you know, much, much more developed stuff. Um, so I'd be curious to know a little bit about, about that and also about records um, and sources. Um, I was, you know, you talked about all the shipbuilding and the industrial clubs and teams. Have you ever looked to see, or if you mentioned this and I missed it, I'm sorry, but um, what kind of, are there any institutional records still lying around for many of these organizations? I know that, um, uh, you know, I think think Brian looked at some of the FAR Alpaca um, company stuff, corporate records. And people, you know, like people like Steve Apostolov has looked at Quincy, their shipbuilding records in Fort River. Is there stuff in that area of New Jersey where there might be some corporate records still lying around somewhere? I think, from what I understand, Bethlehem Steel, none of their stuff exists anymore from the soccer side. But is there any, is there any anything on that avenue? Um, yeah, just curious.
4: Uh, to answer the last question first, um, most of my sources uh, for their shipyard clubs, uh, a lot of them actually put out these periodicals, like the, the Morse Dry uh, Dry Dock Dial. Uh, Federal Shipbuilding also had one. There was also a, a submarine uh, company at one point that had their own. I, I can I can put you in, in touch with those as well. I send you some links to those. But they were actually uh, that one picture on the Morse Dry Dock team. I actually got out of uh, the Morse duck dial, so that that has been my main source for uh, for for information on those. And they, they, you know, they go through excruciating detail about like you know what a burner is and who the who the all the people in all the different departments and everything. It's actually uh, quite an interesting uh, uh, periodical that they put out. Uh, but but they do touch on soccer and they're also involved in a lot of other sports as well, like basketball teams and they had a lot of boxing and baseball teams as well <clears throat> so pretty uh, pretty interesting organizations uh, these uh shipyards <clears throat> but back to the agars yeah i know there's um the, the brothers there was a bunch of agar brothers that came over uh, from from england and played and uh, they were originally involved with i think the critchley's in in brooklyn and and then matt agar you know really sort of not only was a player, you know, he, 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 bounced around a lot. I know he played uh, at least one game with uh, the Wilberforce uh, football club in Patterson and, but he was mainly an administrator and, and was part owner of the Brooklyn Wanderers when and, you know, got a, uh, an ASL franchi- franchise in I think 23 and, and then sort of became, uh, you know, a very uh, public uh, character after that in terms of, uh, the soccer administration, but yeah, there's a, a decent amount there in, in the in the in the New York papers about the, you know the agar. I can I can point you to some sources if you'd
6: like.
5: All right, I'm going to usher us into the last thing we have to do right now, which is a a very brief uh, uh, business meeting. Uh, I'm going to begin with like three points. Um, you know, the kind of first part of of 2020, obviously our plans were scuppered. It was very much looking forward to hosting folks at Rutgers Newark. Uh, Obviously, Kurt's done a lot in that area. I've done a lot in that area. And we were looking forward to, you know, combination – you know, symposium and social uh, gatherings. Uh, You know, there was a tour. uh, There was a social hour at the Scots Club um, in Kearney. There were perhaps even uh, an MLS match, uh, plus our presentations. Uh, So sad to see that, but I'm loving what we've created uh, in that void. You know, we have people in Salt Lake. We have people in Texas. We have people in uh, Maryland, maybe people that could not have made it uh, into uh, Newark in mid-April, so uh, I, I think we've we've recovered really nicely and and created something uh, with the Zoom account that we can uh, push forward. You know, w- with this space and with these opportunities uh, to share our work. You know, that collegiality uh, that that we're building uh, here. Uh, also, you know, the website continues to be a great resource. Uh, the main driver behind that is ed farnsworth uh, updating statistics putting up posts so I, I would encourage folks to consider uh still posting on that website cuz we're looking to create content with the site and clearly uh with um you know our uh various uh, symposia and and meetings and we have another one in the works for next month uh which will be uh the, called the scotch professors uh come across the water uh, david kilpatrick uh is uh behind this with the scotch professors network uh we have some folks uh in scotland in glasgow in particular Uh, that are very interested in in kind of joining forces uh, with us. Uh, And then some, you know, goals for 2020 is, you know, build, you know, these SASH sessions, as David calls them, uh, an e-publication that we've uh, mentioned already. Uh, And then, of course, plan for 2020. Um, And I, I think we can do that towards the end of the summer. I mean, sorry, 2021 as to where we would most likely meet in person, whether it's in Frisco, uh, whether it's somewhere else uh, around the United States. So that's all I have. I I, I think we have, you know, uh, record uh, membership, uh, 50 uh, members uh, paid up, um, you know, with, you know, their $20 uh, membership fee. Uh, We have many more people following us. So I think we're growing this from strengths to strength. And uh, I just want to thank folks for their resiliency and their commitment to these last two uh, session. Thanks to everybody. Have a great summer, Um, uh, but we'll we'll be back together in in July with uh, the Scotch professor. So hoping that you guys can, and gals can join us, uh, you know, for that. So thank you. Have a great night.